well, Election Day is almost here. If you don't believe that America is the land of promise, all you have to do is turn on the TV and listen to some of the, the commercials that these politicians are giving us. Promises, promises, promises. Um, I'm reminded of a four-year-old little girl who tugged on her dad who'd been watching a political ads, and he, she was begging him to stop and uh, read her a little fairy tale. And weary of seeing all these endless campaign ads, he agreed, and he started reading the fairy tale. Uh, but she interrupted him, and she looked at him right in the face, and she asked, Daddy, do all fairy tales begin with once upon a time? And he responded, no, sweetheart, most fairy tales begin with, and when I'm elected. (laughs) You know, that's sad, but it's true. It's sad, but it's true. I I once heard a a preacher say that if Christopher Columbus were around today, he could have been the greatest politician of all time. And the reason was this. When he left, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And when he came back, he didn't know where he'd been. And he did it all with somebody else's money. (laughs) Well, you know, we can joke about politicians and statesmen and things like that, but um, that's true a lot of the times. But we need these men to lead our country, and therefore we should support those who fit in the realm of biblical standards and morality. Um, In Proverbs chapter 29 Verse 2, it says, When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. Now, in America, for the godly to be in authority, we have to vote for them. I was down at the coffee shop the other day, and someone was saying, another Christian actually was explaining to me why they wouldn't vote for a certain candidate because of his religion. And I said, well, you know, I I don't think we're electing a church leader or a pastor. We're electing a president. So I think we have to look a little further than his religion and maybe look at these individuals' moral moral values that they hold. Uh, Elections are the basic part of how our government works. Um, Government is one of the three institutions God established along with family and the church. Paul states in in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that governmental authorities exist, that exist have been established by who? By God. So God is the one who established this. Now the question is, since God established the institution of government, would he then tell his people to stay out of it? No. No. God expects us to get involved. God expects us to make a positive impact on the upcoming election, one that would reflect the morals and the values that we see that would honor Christ in the Word of God. So I titled the message today, Politically Incorrect. Stop apologizing and start proclaiming the truth. How to have a positive impact as a Christian citizen. God expects us to not only be involved, but to pray about our involvement. Stop and think. The Christian who founded this wonderful nation and who shaped it at its inception 
were founded on Christian Judeo principles. Did you know the first representative assembly in America convened in the church at Jamestown in 1619? And here's why they did it. To establish one equal and uniform government over all Virginia, which would provide just laws for the happy guiding and governing of the people there inhabiting. When the pilgrims came one year later in 1620, they were blown off course and didn't make it to Virginia where they would be governed by the king's charter. So they decided to draw up their own governing document, the first created in America, called the Mayflower Compact. It begins with this. In the name of God, and it gave this reason for their coming, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. So we're talking about the positive influence of Christians on America and the culture, and the government. You may know that Connecticut is called a constitution state because the constitution, the first constitution in America was enacted in 1839 called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. But did you know that it was based upon a pastor, Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon on Deuteronomy 113? Did you know that the first educational law was passed in Massachusetts in 1641 for the purpose of ensuring that children would be able to read and understand the scriptures? That was the purpose. Did you know the first university in America, Harvard, was named for Reverend John Harvard? Or that it was founded to train ministers? that for over 150 years it was distinctly a Christian organization, education. Did you know that the first hospitals in America were founded mostly by Christians? That it was the Quakers in Pennsylvania and the Puritan ministers of New England who led the fight against slavery in America? Did you know that 93% of our founding fathers who voted for the Declaration of Independence and crafted our Constitution were professing Orthodox Christians? And that even of the handful who were not Orthodox Christians, each one respected biblical morality as a basis for our laws and valued public religion for maintaining order and civility. I mean, even our very first president, George Washington, said that the twin pillars essential for supporting a successful society are morality and religion. What kind of religion? Was it just any kind of religion? John Adams, our second president, clarified that when he declared this. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. See, again, we're talking about Christians founding, molding, and shaping America. Did you know that our form of government reflects biblical principles? In fact, representative government is based on Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, where it says, Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men, who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Our system of checks and balances in our government between the branches is based on the doctrine, basically, of the sinfulness of men. It's Romans 3.23 that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, there's three branches 
In Isaiah 33, 22, the Lord is our judge, the judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver, the legislative branch. And the Lord is our king, the executive branch. It is he who will save us. So when you look back and you see how the Christians were involved in the founding and shaping of America's culture and government, it's the devil's lie if we believe it. Well, there's this separation between church and state. So we ought not get involved in politics. Now, don't get me wrong. I still believe God is sovereign and God will put into office whomever he desires to put into office. And we need to respect that. Nobody wants a national tax-supported state church. And nobody wants state control of churches, which is what the First Amendment refers to. Does that mean that God and government are to stay separate? That there's somehow this wall in between it? Well, that's not what the Founding Fathers believed or practiced, beloved. Does that mean that there's to be no influence from Christians on the culture and government? What did our own Lord say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16? He says, you are the what? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. In other words, we're to have an impact in the society in which we live. We should witness and share the Christian principles and values that we find within the Word of God. So make no doubt about it. Our nation was founded on Christian principles and Christian values. We need to bring our Christian faith and values to bear on the culture and on our government, just as we have done from the very beginning. Well, secondly, when you think of In election, you think of voting. And I want to think of Christians voting in America. This is one way that God has allowed us to be involved. I mean, when we vote, we help determine who will lead our nation. That's a rather significant thing. We determine who will make our laws, who will protect our freedoms. So voting is a simple act with a significant impact. Founding Father Samuel Adams said this, Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. Many of the Founding Fathers considered voting as a sacred responsibility. Voting is a, is a, is a privilege. It's, it's a freedom. It's an opportunity that millions in other parts of the world's can only dream about. Yet, still strangely, many Americans, even Christian Americans, choose not to vote. Less than half of those eligible to vote actually do in any given election. In fact, out of 60-plus million evangelical Christians in America, nearly half failed to vote in the 2004 election. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But Jesus said this in Matthew 22, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. 
See, to obey the commands of Christ, America's faithful must participate in the government and in America. And that's the democratic process of voting. If you and I don't participate, then we're not really fulfilling Christ's command. In fact, when Christians retreat from the arena of government, we allow Satan to prevail in a place where Christ commanded us to make an impact, to be the salt and the light. There's an old proverb that's been around, and it's still true today. It says this, bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Christians need to vote. Believers need to vote. Well, how do we vote? How do we, how do we arrange our vote to get the, the best, most biblical and moral government possible? Well, I think, first of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you can turn over there, 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. First of all, Paul writes, Then I, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We need to seek God in our government. It says there, first of all. First of all what? Pray. Pray for our leaders. Don't just criticize them. Pray for them. Pray for their wisdom. Pray for God's wisdom to somehow overrun them and and give them the wisdom they need to lead our nation according to the Christian principles upon which it was founded. Pray that they would come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. When's the last time you've prayed for our president's salvation? When's the last time you prayed for our senator, our congressman's salvation? The only way our nation will be changed is through the gospel. This isn't a political action sermon. It's a sermon to remind us of the, really, the the responsibility we have as Christian citizens in this wonderful country in which we live. It's only through a relationship with Jesus as Lord that our elected officials will lead in such a way that they will be able, that we will be able to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if we do not pray for our nation and our leaders, not only will we continue to have little impact on the direction of America, but we are literally sinning against God. Pray. Pray for the leaders. Secondly, support your government. Say what? Support it. There's a couple ways you can do that. First of all, pay your taxes that you're required to pay. That's the 
teaching of Jesus over and over point out that there's a lot of waste and questionable spending. We know that. But you know what? That's not our problem. We need to make sure that we're paying our fair share of the taxes as required by the law. Secondly, we need to make sure that we're taking pride in our government. So many times we criticize government, me me included, you know, bureaucracy and all this stuff. But you know what? It's one of the finest governments in the world. There's not one other nation in the world that people would strive to come to. Because it was found on those principles. It's good to be patriotic. You don't need to apologize for that. Thirdly, submit to the government. You say, well, what if the government does something that's not biblical? That word in in 1 Peter and also in Romans 13, the Greek word for submit means to fall in rank under authority. See, government, the reason government exists, beloved, is to keep order. It's to punish the evil and reward the good. That's the sole purpose of government. Now, yeah, they've overstepped their boundaries in so many different ways. We know that. But that just goes back to all of sin and falls short of the glory of God. That's why we have a government of checks and balances. But we have to submit to the rule of law. Christians of all Christians ought to be model citizens. If we rebel against the rule of law, when really we're, in fact, rebelling against God who ordained it. Romans 13. We're to show these authorities respect. Sometimes I hear people talk of our president in such a demeaning way. Whether you agree with him or not, he's still the president. And whether that's a president or a congressman or whatever, they're an official that's over us, whether you like it or not. And they demand and they should receive our respect. And then fourthly, stand up to your government. George Washington said this, Government is a troublesome servant and a fearful master. See, sometimes we have to stand up to our government. Sometimes we do have to to step out and say, no, this is not right. I'm not going to do this. We're going to talk about some of those things. But there's even examples. Daniel and other areas where he stood up to what was wrong in the society. And we obey God rather than Government. So we have to make those calls, but we do so prayerfully. I'm not big into civil disobedience. I don't think that's, that's necessarily the way God would have us to deal with it. I don't believe going out and carrying a placard and protesting really does anybody any good at all. I think the way to change America is change people's hearts through the gospel of Christ. But to do that, we need to be praying for their salvation. As Christians, we need to use our freedom, really, to defend our freedom. Because if we don't defend it, we may lose it. And Sometimes when you speak out, especially in this day and age, in the political environment we find ourselves in, people look at you a little weird and say, well, you know, I don't want to talk about that. Sometimes people need to be educated on the matters. 
We must stand up. We must let our voices be heard in the same way. And then, fifthly there, we need to select our government. Go and vote. Make sure you're registered. Make sure you're, you're ready to go when that day comes. You know, that, that's just kind of common sense. Well, what are we to vote for when we do actually go and vote? There's a couple things listed here, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on these. Christians voting our values. You know, we don't just vote for the sake of voting. Now, I know that sometimes you get that ballot and you look at all those propositions on there and your head just spins and your eyes roll back in your head and you're thinking, ah, I don't know, whatever, you know, because you can't even make sense of the stuff. And you've got to do some homework. You've got to get some other person's expertise and, and kind of figure out what's going on with some of these things. Don't just, you know, walk away from it and say, I'm not even going to go. It's a privilege. But don't just vote. Vote your values. Vote for what would honor Christ, what would honor God. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of Christians even don't consider Christian values when they vote. Often they'll choose candidates that are at total odds with what the Word of God says and their own beliefs and their own convictions and their own values. A study by the Pew Forum of the Religion in public life a few years ago, showed that 62% of Americans say their faith has little to do with their voting decisions. That's a lot of people. And that's tragic because that goes against what Jesus wants. Jesus expects us to influence every part of the culture and the society as salt and light. And that includes the democratic process. There was a founding father by the name of John Jay. And he was appointed by George Washington as the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And Jay said this, It is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. There's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, Christian rulers should have, hopefully, Christian values, right? Well, that's not always true, as we find out. There's a lot of folks out there who use the Christian lingo, but when you look at some of the positions they hold on these key issues, you find out that it's, it's purely unbiblical and not the values of Christ. And so it's important for us to do our homework on the candidates. Don't just listen to the campaign rhetoric. Look at their records in office. Don't just watch their political ads. Look at their positions on certain issues. Think about it this way. Every candidate has his or her own set of values, his or her own positions on important issues. Don't you think that where a candidate stands on moral issues is far more important than the party he or she belongs to? Or the campaign ad that you thought was slick and neat? Shouldn't we vote for candidates who share our moral values as believers? And here's one other thing. I'd be very careful about aligning yourself too closely with political parties and any politician. That's unwise because we need to be free to call on political parties and politicians to repentance when they step outside the biblical morality and the biblical principles and values. There's another founding father by the name of Benjamin Rush. 
And he worked for elected officials from different political parties. And he was accused one day of being a partisan. And here's the quote that he gave. I have been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. And he said this, I am neither. I am a Christocrat. (laughs) See, our loyalties need to be first, last, and always to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We need to vote his values. Okay, so what are these values? Let's, Let's see what they are. And there's a lot of different opinions going around among Bible-believing Christians when it comes to the economy, national security, and all kinds of different things, immigration, all sorts of things. We're not going to get into all those. At this time in American history, let me give you three values that are on the top of the list. Three values, very quickly. The first one is the value of human life. The value of human life. As a Christian, I believe that life is precious. Life is miraculous. It's sacred. It's created by a loving God who makes every human being unique. So many things have to line up exactly perfect for a human life to be conceived and to be born. King David prayed this, My bones, in Psalm 139, My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God is the author and the artist of human life. He's the one who creates us. He's the one who forms us, who fashions us. Life made in the image of God is also a fundamental human right. Let me remind you what the Declaration of Independence says. All men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think they just kind of rolled the dice and said, well, which one of these should we put first? No, they said life is that underlying fundamental human right. Then liberty, then pursuit of happiness. Life is the first God-given right of every human being. If you don't have life, you certainly can't enjoy liberty or pursue happiness. Unfortunately, in America today, our God-given right to life has been undermined by a culture of death. Every day in America, more innocent human beings are put to death than those who died in the 9-11 attacks. Abortion ends the lives of more than what's over 1.3 million unborn children in America every year. Can you imagine that? Not just people, not just adults, children, innocent little babies that are yet in the mother's womb, the place that is supposed to be safe. Nearly 25% of all pregnancies end in abortion. And the overwhelming majority of those innocent children are simply sacrificed on the altar of convenience, I like to say. Nearly 50 million babies and counting 
have been killed by abortion. I'm sure the number is much greater now. I mean, it's a holocaust in our own culture. And somehow we just kind of accept it. Proverbs 24, 11 to 12 says, Rescue those being led away by death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say we knew nothing about this. I mean, does that, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? See, we need to stand up. We need to rise up. We need to speak out. We need to take some action. Why? Because simply abortion is wrong. It's wrong because it's it's against every biblical value principle that we can think of. It's premeditated murder. It violates the Sixth Amendment commandment in, in Exodus chapter 20. God hates it. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17 says this, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You don't think a little baby in the womb of a mother is innocent? And yet I hear so many Christians, Well, we can't make this election about abortion. Oh, yes, we can. And we should. Because it's a disgrace before a holy God. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And his ears are filled with the cries of unborn being slain in this nation. But there will be a day of reckoning. We're already seeing it. I believe it's our duty as followers of Christ and citizens of America to find out where our candidates are where they stand on the biblical value of life. You don't even have to ask what their positions are. It's pretty clear. Find out which candidates are aligned with the pro-abortion groups that are all for the tax-funded abortion provider Planned Parenthood. Find out how they vote on these kind of things. How they vote on the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, or the Partial Birth Ban, or the Freedom of Choice Act, or the Embryonic Cell, Stem Cell Research, so forth. Find out what their, their positions are. And vote according to biblical values and principles. As believers, we ought to support that basic value of human life above what our tax policy might be or our energy policy or what the foreign policy might be or any other policy. If we can't support the basic value of human life, boy, that's pretty sad. There's another value that I think is important, not just the value of human life, but the value of traditional family. The value that believes that marriage between one man and one woman for life is essential, it's basic, it's necessary for our society to continue. You have to understand, the family is the basic building block of a society. 
It's the first institution created by God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The two genders were meant to complete each other. Not just physically, but emotionally and in every other way. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God further declares, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. See, both genders are needed for a healthy home. This idea that you can just go have a baby by somebody that's not your husband and and be a single mom and that's great for the child, that's not the case. Statistics prove it out. Dr. James Dobson notes this, more than 10,000 studies have concluded that kids do best when they are raised by a mother and a father. Bottom line. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, one man, one woman in marriage, a covenant relationship for life, is the divine pattern. And when a marriage follows God's design, it's good for everybody involved. For the men, for the women, for the children, the community, the country, the world. Every civilization, think about this, in history, is built upon the institution of marriage. It's the foundation. It's the underlying bedrock of any society. The welfare of children, propagation of the faith, the well-being of society, the orderliness of civilization, all are dependent upon the stability of marriage, according to the divine pattern. And when you have... A government that undermines that God-given divine pattern. Basically, everything becomes unstable. The whole society, the whole superstructure of society just begins to rock and roll back and forth because it's unstable. Because the foundation of the family has been eroded. And it invites mere disaster. I mean, look at our society today. Just look at how it's changed in the last 10, 20 years as these non-biblical values have kind of escalated. Heterosexuality is a divine pattern, beloved. Homosexuality is a deceptive perversion. It's just that simple. And, and just like, you know, the, 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 the value of human life, you know, I don't know who's here to, this morning. I maybe, maybe, you know, somebody here has experienced personally an abortion for whatever reason. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to point you to the grace of God that can restore you, that can heal that emotional scar. Only he can do that. The word of God, which does not err, is abundantly clear when it comes to homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 says, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It's detestable. Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both contaminated, committed an, an abomination. Homosexuality is an abomination to God. 
I mean, that's the strongest biblical word for the denunciation of sin. It's the proof of which is in God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember in the Old Testament? They were destroyed in a hail of fire and brimstone in Genesis 19. And some say, well, that's the Old Testament. Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. I've heard people say that. Jesus essentially condemned homosexuality by affirming the divine pattern for marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. And he clearly states that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that what God has joined together, let no man separate. So if, if Jesus said marriage is between one man and one woman, it follows the logical conclusion that marriage cannot be between two men and, or two women. In affirming God's pattern for marriage, Jesus rejected the deceptive perversion of homosexuality. And this isn't something new. This has been around as long as there's been a society. Today, the divine pattern, that sacred institution of marriage, is under attack by the radical homosexual agenda. And they have their allies in the courts... And they're seeking to redefine marriage. Massachusetts, California, Connecticut, others have same-sex marriage. And we've seen how the courts just kind of overturn it. When the people vote it down, well, they just, you know, we voted for it. You know, we voted against it. Well, they just reverse it. Not up to you. What damage could be done by the courts allowing two consenting adults of the same gender to join in a relationship and sanction known as marriage? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, you don't have to look too far. If you go over to the Scandinavian countries that basically have embraced de facto gay marriage back in the 90s, you see what's happening to their society. The vast majority of couples there are choosing to simply live together instead of getting married. Figuring that if, if marriage means anything, then marriage means really nothing. In Norway, there are reports of upwards of 60 to 80 percent of firstborn children conceived out of wedlock. I mean, that whole experiment, the facts from that is just devastating. I mean, is that what we want for America? In Massachusetts, which has had same-sex marriage by court order, I think, since 2003, consider the impact on the public school children. In one elementary school, a transsexual was invited into the first grade class to give details of his operation. In another elementary school, children were assigned to play gays in a school skit. Two girls were told to hold hands and pretend to be lesbians. One boy's line was, it's natural to be attracted to the same sex. A Lexington, Lexington, Massachusetts school treated their second graders to a book entitled King and King, which is a colorful 29-page children's book in which a prince searches for a wife only in the end to choose another prince. And the story ends in this fashion, with the two princes marrying and living happily ever after. 
On the last page, the princes, now king, the princes, now kings, even share a kiss. This was read to seven-year-olds. Writing in the leading homosexual magazine, The Advocate, lesbian author Patricia Neal Warren said this, It is the first fact of civilization. Whoever captures the kids owns the future. So do we really want this homosexual agenda pushed on our children? Consequently, where a candidate stands on protecting the value of traditional marriage is absolutely critical. Find out where these candidates are aligned. If they're aligned with pro-homosexual groups like Human Rights Campaign or GLAD, any of those, you might want to compare that to what the Bible says and vote on biblical values. Find out where the candidates stand on Defense of Marriage Act or on the state marriage amendments or the federal marriage amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Find out where they stand on traditional values, traditional family, life, family. And then the last thing here this morning is the value of religious freedom. The value of religious freedom. Freedom is inspiring, it's liberating, and it's priceless. That's why so many people are trying to get into our country to live here. Because we live in a free nation. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. See, freedom is something that we have to guard. We have to protect it. It has to be defended. True freedom only comes at a great cost. At a price. At a sacrifice. Ask anyone who's served in our military. And they'll tell you it's a sacrifice. They don't get paid a lot. That's why it's called, I always tell my... My son-in-law when, or my daughter, when, when they're saying, oh, we don't get hardly anything in pay. So that's why it's called military service. <laughs> they don't want you there just for the money. True freedom comes at a great cost. And that's not only true spiritually with the death of Christ to set us free from the slavery of sin, but it's also true nationally. I mean, you really have to understand that we are engaged in a war against this Islamo-fascist terrorism that is just wreaking havoc in all parts of the world. And you see how our own government is beginning, well, they just apologize, they apologize, they apologize, thinking that maybe if they're nice to these people, eventually they'll, you know, um, hold hands and play Ring Around the Rosie or something. I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. They have one goal in mind. It's the downfall of America and everything it stands for and the downfall of Israel. I mean, there's no excuse, there's no substitute here for victory in this area especially because the alternative is just unthinkable. The fight for freedom is never won. It's ongoing. And we must fight to win it. And then we must fight to keep it. And we must continue to fight. And that fight has gone on for over 200-some years. See, that's why we honor the brave, the intrepid souls who serve in our, our military and never let their sacrifices be in vain. One of the most basic freedoms fought for and won is found in the First Amendment. 
It says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Beloved, our, our religion is under fire today in America. I mean, you can't tear a page out of a Koran without people going crazy all over the world, but they can put a crucifix in a jar of urine and, urine and call it art. It's just staggering. One of the most basic freedoms that we have is the freedom of religion. The U.S. Supreme Court has ignored the original intent of the founding fathers. They trashed four centuries of America's Judeo-Christian heritage and turned a statement in one of Thomas Jefferson's private letters on its head in declaring a two-way wall of separation between church and state. The result was this. Religious influences must be removed from public institutions. The high court outlawed public prayer in the schools in 1962. Outwent the public Bible reading in 1963. And in 1980 came down the Ten Commandments from the schoolhouse walls. See, this agenda is agenda of radical secularization. And it's not only been zealously prosecuted by the active this courts that we have, but by extension, the various public entities, school boards, educators, teachers. See, today in America, unfortunately, if you have faith, you may not be allowed to have freedom. Liberals in Congress have passed hate crimes. And this law elevates the sinful sexual lifestyle of 3% of our population to the level of a civil right. Ignoring the fact that those who oppose homosexuality on biblical grounds will eventually be silenced or threatened with prosecution. If you don't believe me, a Methodist camp in New Jersey lost its tax exemption status for refusing to allow two lesbians to have a same-sex ceremony on their property. A Christian couple who runs a photography business declined to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony and were charged with sexual orientation discrimination and had to pay over $6,000 in attorney fees. The California Supreme Court demanded that doctors with religious objections to lesbian households must nonetheless assist lesbian women in artificially conceiving a child. A New York public school told a kindergarten student that she could not pray over her lunch. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Federal court ruled that when a student asks, the teacher cannot answer whose birthday is being celebrated on Christmas. Crazy. I mean, it's just surreal almost. A public school teacher confiscated two middle school students' Bibles, called them garbage, and threw them into a trash can. Got in a lot of trouble, by the way, for doing that, but she did it. The Third Circuit Court ruled in that a New Jersey high school coach cannot kneel and bow his head because the court doesn't want his posture to be misconstrued as prayer. 
See, our First Amendment freedom of religion is under vicious attack. Maybe it hasn't affected you in any way, but it definitely has affected lots of people. And it's kind of flying under the radar. George Washington, in his farewell address, said this, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to public prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Nobody ought to claim to be a good citizen. A patriot who takes Christianity out of culture or out of government is not a good citizen. Where a candidate stands on religious freedom and particularly on judicial philosophy is absolutely critical to our ability to continue to have the freedom that we enjoy in our daily lives. So be careful and find out which candidates are aligned with groups like the ACLU or the Americans for Separation of Church and State who basically want to remove all expressions of religion. And we've seen that. You've seen that over the years. Find out which candidates who are all for these these hate crime laws or employment non-discrimination acts which infringe on freedoms as Christians. Find out where they stand on the First Amendment right to religious freedom. I mean, so these are the, the, the top three values. Life, family, and freedom. Those are the values that When I look at a candidate, I evaluate them by. Are we going to vote biblical values or are we going to vote pocketbook promises? Are we willing to trade our godly heritage and priceless birthright in this nation for what amounts to Esau's quick bowl of beans? Are we willing to set aside the values of life, family, and freedom in favor of some of these lesser issues? That's what it comes down to. Just imagine the difference Bible-believing Christians can make on the moral health of a country, the character of its leadership, the direction of a nation, if we simply live our values and vote our values. So let us not let evil men triumph simply because good men have done nothing. Let's seize the moment, rise to the challenge. Take the bold stand for life, family, and freedom this election. Let's pledge anew that our allegiance is not to the culture or to a campaign, but to Christ alone, to what would honor and glorify him. Jesus said this in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and that you may have it abundantly. And he also said he is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to make things right between us and God. He came to to restore that relationship between a holy God and a sinful man. The Bible says in John 8, 36, beloved, that whom the Son has set free, he is free indeed. Maybe, you know... You don't agree with everything I said here this morning, but I pray that you would agree with one thing. 
Maybe only one thing. That we're all sinners and we all need the grace of God. We all need the forgiveness for our sin. Because we can't seem to forgive ourselves. We can't seem to pay the debt that we owe. And the good news today, beloved, for you is that Christ already paid that debt. He paid that debt through the the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God paid that debt for us. And so when we look at the cross and we put our faith and our trust in a salvation that is freely given to us, even though it costs Christ and God dearly, it's given to us. And we look at our lives and we realize that we're sinners and we need a Savior. See, that's the first step. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't understand that basic principle. And just think, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value from someone? Have you ever had a lustful thought or an evil deed? All those things are considered sin before a holy God. And Christ came to pay the price for your sins. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning, Lord, as we realize that politics and religion often don't mix, but Lord, you've called us to stand up for what is right and what is true and what is biblical, what is a value that would honor and glorify you. And Lord, when we think of life, Lord, that fundamental given right that you gave us, Lord, I pray for anyone here who's experienced the horror of abortion. Lord, I pray that you would heal their heart, that you would help them to acknowledge before you their need if they haven't already sought it for forgiveness. And Father, that you would even help them to understand that even though that child maybe was aborted, that one day they will see that child again. And Father, I pray that you would be gracious to them as they turn to you. Lord, maybe there's those here who, when you talk about marriage, it's maybe not all what it's cracked up to be in their own lives. Maybe their marriages need work. Lord, I pray that you would intercede. Lord, that you would help them protect this institution that you've ordained. Lord, help us not believe the lie that Satan wants us to, that, well, you know, it's just too tough and we just don't love each other, so we're just going to give up and get a divorce. Bring an end to something that God never intended to end on this earth. I pray that they would find renewed vigor to commit themselves to one another and to love each other in spite of the other person, as Christ loves us. And Father, that you would restore the freshness to that relationship, that marriage, that family. And Lord, we think of our country and we think of the freedom that we have here in this wonderful nation. Lord, we realize it's not because of politics. It's a God-given, it's a God-granted freedom. And even though our, our nation is far from perfect, it's downright living in a, in a way that is totally dishonoring to you for the most part. Your grace still extends. We still enjoy these freedoms each and every day. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just take that for granted. 
And Lord, when election day comes here in a couple weeks and we enter that that place of voting, Lord, that we would vote what would honor you. Vote for biblical values. I also pray that we'd be reminded to pray for those in authority over us. Lord, we pray for our president, Barack Obama. We pray for his salvation. We pray that you would touch him in a fresh way. Lord, that you would show him that it's not all about just being president and being the most powerful man in the world. Lord, just like every other man, he needs a savior. And Lord, we, we pray for his family. Pray for his girls that you protect them. Pray for our vice president, Joe Biden, and his family. Lord, we think of others who serve you. Think of Mitt Romney and, and just the being on the campaign trail and all that's involved in that. We pray for him and his family and Paul Ryan and others, Lord, who serve in, in Washington. Lord, I pray that you would somehow speak to these men's heart, that you would show them that power is not an end all. Lord, that they need they need a Savior just like everybody else. That somehow someone would be able to reach them with the glorious gospel. That somehow you would take the blinders off their eyes. That they would come to Christ afresh. And Father, we pray for our nation as a whole. Lord, we, we see it going downhill. We just see it's a tragedy. And yet, Lord, we know that, God, you're sovereign. And when certain governments and certain nations make certain decisions that dishonor you, there will, there will be consequences, and we're reaping those consequences even now. So, Lord, we pray that you would just restore our faith, not in our government, but in you, as our Savior and as our Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.